about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I am telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. His disciples stared at one another, at a loss to know which of them he meant. One of them, the disciple whom Jesus loved, was reclining next to him. Simon Peter motioned to this disciple and said, Ask him which one he means. Leaning back against Jesus, he asked him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is the one to whom I will give this piece of bread when I have dipped it in the dish. Then, dipping the piece of bread, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. As soon as Judas took the bread, Satan entered into him. So Jesus told him, What you are about to do, do quickly. But no one at the meal understood why Jesus said this to him. Since Judas had charge of the money, Some thought Jesus was telling him to buy what was needed for the festival or to give something to the poor. As soon as Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and it was night. Well, if truth be told... Last year saw a, an increase in my Netflix quota. Perhaps the same is true of you. Uh, one of the shows that I watched last year, uh, I was pretty late to, um, but uh, Lauren and I enjoyed it quite a lot, uh, is a show called Community. Who's seen Community? A lot of you. Excellent. Uh, you know, it's about a, a group of, if you don't, some of you haven't seen it, that's, that's okay. Um, it's about a group of odd people at a community college in the US. Uh, and in one episode, some of the group take part in a debate. Uh, the topic of the debate is whether man is good or evil. They mean man in the sense of humanity. It's weirdly un-PC language for you know, an American show of that time. Uh, whether man is good or evil is the topic. And one team is, is the, the opposing team to our team that is led by a, a clever fellow in a wheelchair, and they argue that man is good. Uh, and on the other side are the, the, the people we know, and they're, they're arguing that man is evil. And our team almost lose the debate when, as a kind of final climax, the guy in the wheelchair manages to rocket himself out of the wheelchair onto Jeff. who's on this team. And Jeff catches him and he says, he hates me, yet he caught me. 
man is good. But then straight away, uh, um, the girl on the team, I've forgotten her name. Anybody remember what her name is? Annie. Annie kisses Jeff passionately and he just drops the guy. And she says, he was horny, so he dropped him. Man is evil. It's a funny scene, um, but it's also an interesting one, if you'll allow me to make more of it than it deserves. It's interesting because what happens at the end is that a certain kind of action is seen as decisive. Uh, The idea is that if a person would do that, then the game is up. The question is decided. Right? No doubt there's lots of evidence on both sides of this question. Humans do all sorts of wonderful and kind things, sure, but if they would do that in those circumstances, then we cannot in the end conclude that they are good. Now, you would be unwise to learn your deepest convictions from community. Uh, Nobody, that was intended as a joke, which makes me think some of you, that is like an important point, and you're, you're kind of sitting there thinking, oh, okay, I should think about that. It's not, I just, I'm just assuming you know that, okay? Um, and if not, you know, we need to have a pastoral conversation. Um, but, you know, something similar happens in the Gospel of John that ought to be taken seriously. Uh, because here, in this passage we're looking at, uh, it's... It, this evening, we're asked to look squarely that an action that is, in a sense, decisive, an action that must limit and shape the way we think about human beings. And that action is the betrayal of Jesus by Judas. And it is one of the darkest moments in the gospel story. John concludes our passage with words designed to make us notice this. Did you notice it? And it was night. Light and darkness, night and day, are uh, the imagery that kind of are sown through the whole of John's gospel as a a literary work. And John wants us to notice this. This is a dark moment. We pick up our passage. The passage is printed. uh, You hopefully got it on the way in. There's a sermon outline on the other side. We pick up our passage where we left off last week at verse 18. If you weren't with us last week, we're spending three weeks before Easter looking at John chapter 13, which are the events in John's gospel of the night on which Jesus was betrayed. And we catch Jesus here midway through a speech. He's just told the disciples in verse 17 that they will be blessed if they follow his example of humble service. He's just washed their feet and says, this is what you're meant to do too. But now he goes on in verse 18 by dropping a a bombshell. Have a look at it there. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I've chosen, but this is to fulfill this passage of Scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens, so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me, and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. After he had said this, Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, very truly I tell you, one of you is going to betray me. One of them 
one of the disciples is going to betray Jesus. That's the bombshell. But notice the way Jesus builds up to it. He begins by saying, I'm not talking about all of you. Why, they're thinking. In what way? What, what does he mean? It, it grabs them and draws them in. And then he quotes scripture, a distressing scripture from Psalm 41. If they'd remembered the original, it's this bit where he says, um, the one who shared my bread has lifted his has turned against me. And if they'd already remembered the original, it would have made it even worse because it says this, even my close friend, sorry about the duplication, even my close friend, someone I trusted, one who shared my bread has turned against me. What's he talking about? They're thinking. He is going to tell them, but before he does, he tells them why he's telling them. Why is he telling them this? So that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Well, literally, actually, Jesus just says, so that you may believe that I am. It's a very peculiar phrase, but it's there a number of times in John's gospel. And if you were with us earlier when we looked at uh, the book of Isaiah, you'll, you'll, you'll notice that it feels familiar. Actually, I think Jesus is drawing on a phrase from the Old Testament a phrase that God uses of himself to describe how he is the ultimate reality, the one uh, rock on which Israel stand, the one thing they can truly trust. Then you will know that I am, says the Lord. And Jesus says something similar here. He says, so that you may believe that I am. And we'll come back to this a little later. For now, we need to stay this with this moment. Jesus gives them this shocking news. One of them is going to betray him and a deafening silence follows. Verse 22, the disciples stared at one another at a loss to know which of them he meant. Imagine the moment, right? Imagine the horror, the incomprehension. They stared around the table at each other. Surely not. One of us? How? Why? Who? Maybe some of them kind of Anxious ones thought, is it me? In the following verses, we're told that Jesus reveals who it will be to one of the disciples. One of the disciples known in John as the disciple Jesus loved. Uh, you may recall that John has already told us that Jesus knew who would betray him. We saw this last week, if you want to check. Chapter 13, verse 11, just a few verses before, it says Jesus knew who was going to betray him. Well, now he shows that he knows. Peter gestures to this disciple Jesus loves. He gestures to him to get Jesus to tell them. You can imagine it. Peter's across the table. He can't whisper to Jesus. So he says, tell him, get him to tell you. And Jesus does. Jesus says it's the person he's about to give a piece of bread to. And he gets the bread and he gives it to Judas, and Judas takes it. And John tells us, Satan entered into him. And then Jesus speaks to Judas directly in verse 27. What you're about to do, do quickly, he says. Why did Jesus do this? Why did he identify Judas like this? Don't you find that curious? I find it curious, because he didn't have to do this. 
right? It doesn't seem to have made Judas do it. Judas seems to have already had his plan. Jesus could have kept quiet. He'd only said that one of them would betray him. He hadn't said which one it was, so it's not like he'd be proven wrong if he didn't show them. So what's this moment about? Why does he, why does he identify Judas? I don't, I don't think I know the answer to this entirely. There's a mystery and a darkness in this moment that we may not be able to fully understand. But we should notice two things. The first is that Jesus identifies Judas in a way that highlights the verse from Psalm 41 he's just quoted. So the psalm says, He who shared my bread has turned against me, and Jesus deliberately gives Judas his bread. He identifies him by giving him his bread. It fulfills Scripture in a really obvious way. Secondly, and following on from this, and this is kind of more important, I think Jesus clearly wants Judas to know that he knows. He wants Judas to know that he knows. He speaks to him. He tells him to do it quickly. He knows. And he wants Judas to know that he knows. Why? Like I said, I don't think we can know everything here. But we can say something about what this does. What it does is that it forces Judas to betray Jesus to his face. Jesus will not allow Judas to do this thing thinking that he's fooled him. He won't allow him to do it on the sly, thinking that Jesus doesn't know what's going on. He makes Judas do it with his eyes on him. Jesus makes Judas know that he sees him. He sees him. And he could have stopped him. He shows him that he is not invisible and what he is doing is not invisible. He prevents Jesus from pretending that he's doing anything other than what he's actually doing. From not being aware of it. By facing him, he he forces Jesus to be aware of what he's doing. He exposes him. And yet Judas still does it. The other disciples don't get it. Even the disciple Jesus loved doesn't connect the dots fast enough. Um, I I don't know why, but I think we can guess that, that what happened was that they just didn't realize this was all happening right now, that minute. The things Jesus was speaking about as if they were going to happen, they were actually happening right there, and, and then it's over. It's done. But it is done. As soon as Jesus, Judas had taken the bread, he went out, and John adds, it was night. You know, what happens here is a really striking example of something said earlier in John's Gospel. In chapter 3, we read this. This is the verdict. Light has come into the world, but people love darkness instead of light because their deeds were evil. Everyone who does evil hates the light and will not come into the light 
for fear that their deeds will be exposed. Jesus' action exposes Judas and his deeds. His presence is like a spotlight that shows what is there. His betrayal, his greed, selfishness and resentment, it's exposed, it's uncovered, it's brought out in the open and he can't bear it. And so he scurries out back into the darkness. I think we see here some of the deep, ugly dynamics of human sinfulness. Don't be misled by the reference to Satan, as if that means that what happens here is something outside our experience, a kind of superhuman evil we could never understand. No, this is a human deed, fully within the world we live in. The mention of Satan just shows us what our world is really like. There is definitely something tragic about Judas's actions. Don't get me wrong, right? He, he is, in a sense, a victim. No one, Judas included, knowingly chooses destruction from the outset, from the beginning. He is caught up here in an evil that is bigger than he is. He's caught in an undertow that is bigger than his own feelings and choices. It's like he's being pulled in a rip out into an ocean of evil that is deep and frightening. There is a deeper darkness at the edge of our actions that is beyond our power. And Judas falls into this darkness, and it is a tragedy. But it isn't just a tragedy, is it? He also very much chooses to go this way. He embraces it. He accepts it. It began, I suspect, with small sins. We talked about this last night frustration and impatience with Jesus, envy at other disciples who he felt were more in favour, simple, ordinary greed and selfishness. Sins we all know and can relate to. It, it probably just began with those sins, but it led to this great sin, to this moment where knowing that Jesus knows, knowing that Jesus sees him, he betrays him. He goes and tells those seeking to kill Jesus where they can find him and how they can get him for a little bit of money. Why? He cannot handle Jesus' light and the way it exposes him. He cannot handle the way Jesus exposes the ugliness of his loves, his desire for success and wealth and power and influence. Jesus' presence shines a light on his dark loves. And it burns. And so in the end, he chooses darkness. He scurries out of the light and betrays Jesus. He betrays Jesus. 
Can you wrap your head around that? The beautiful one. The one who loved to the end, who gave himself for the sake of the lowly. This one whose words came with the weight of heaven, whose mere presence exploded hypocrisy, whose integrity crumbled the power of oppressors and liars, who was like a breaking dawn after a dark night just to be with. Judas gave him up. He allowed himself to be drawn to that deed. This is damning evidence about humanity, friends. For it is evidence that our problem is not just ignorance. We are not just unfortunate and misled. We don't just need a bit more education. Very easy to think that that's the problem, that we're just ignorant. We just don't understand. But that's not the problem. Our sin is not just tragic, you see. It's wicked. For what we see here is deliberate refusal of the light. The light, the light when it comes, it doesn't clear away error like we expect it to. We think that if the light, if, if illumination comes, it will clear up error and, and everybody will go, oh, yeah, okay, I see it now. But that's not what happens Instead, the light comes and it draws evil out and makes it angrier. This is damning evidence about humanity and human nature. For Judas, you see, is not some other being. He's one of us. He is us. His act is not unimaginably evil as if it comes from another world or from some kind of supervillain mastermind. Nor was Jesus mad, obviously deranged and out of contact with reality. No, we can guess how he got here. By the same kind of petty envy and greed and pride that we find in ourselves sometimes. It is a human act from our world. This is what humans will do. Of course, it's not all that humans do. Humans do lots of wonderful things, good things, kind things, generous things, noble things. Thank God. But it is also true that Judas betrayed Jesus. That, too, is what humanity is capable of. And it is damning. Well, that is all pretty bleak isn't it? I'll give you the, the permission to take a breath at this point. It is bleak. Thankfully, though, a thousand thanks, Judas's darkness is not all we see in this passage, for we also see the one who saw into this darkness, who faced it, who exposed it, and who in the end was not overcome by it we see Jesus, the light in the darkness. And in particular, we see here what it cost 
for the light to shine in the darkness. We see what it cost. Did you notice in verse 21, it's a detail that you can just, you can just flip past really easily, but just before Jesus tells them that one of them will betray him, we're told that Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified. He was troubled in spirit. What does that mean? Well, it's a description that means inner turmoil, anxiety and upset. Jesus is disturbed. He's distressed. It's not the first time we've heard this description in John, if you've read through the whole text. Uh, A similar phrase is used in chapter 11, when in that chapter, if you know the story, he stands before the tomb of his friend Lazarus. And we're told there that he was troubled in spirit. And then again, just before this passage in chapter 12, Jesus says this, he says, Now my soul is troubled. Same word. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. No, it was for this very reason that I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. As he speaks here, as he solemnly tells them that one of them will betray him, Jesus is troubled in spirit. You see, it cost him to do this. It cost him to face this hour and all that it meant. He was in turmoil within. It is a difficult and demanding work that he does here. He faces something terrible and it demands all his faith, all his courage to stay strong. He could have stopped this thing. All he would have had to do was to stop Judas. Nothing here is surprising him, but he doesn't. He faces it. He endures it. What you are about to do, do quickly, he says. And that is what it took for light to shine in the darkness. It took the courage and brilliance of this man. Don't ever let yourself imagine that what Jesus did was not difficult for him because he was the Son of God or costly. He was indeed the Son of God. But he was also fully and truly human. He lived a fully and truly human existence. And he faced this darkness as a man, alone. And it was horrifying. It was a costly, terrible work that Jesus did. And he did not deserve to have to endure this, to be troubled and in anguish like this, to knowingly and patiently refuse to turn away from what was coming at Golgotha. He did it, though, for us. He did it for you and for me. He faced the darkness so that it would not, in the end, overcome the light and so that we would be spared it. At the opening of the next chapter... Jesus begins his long speech with these wonderful words. Chapter 14, verse 1, he says, Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Did you hear that? 
It's the same word. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Jesus faced this darkness so that it would not consume us and now need not trouble us any longer. Friends, each of us has a fundamental choice to make that we have to make again and again if we want to be Jesus' disciples. What are we going to believe in? Will it be humanity or will it be Jesus? I am telling you this now before it happens, Jesus said to his disciples, so that when it does happen, you may believe that I am. This passage, this event, is meant to make us think about what we believe and what we believe in. Let me pause on that for a moment. What what does it mean to believe in something? Uh, It might seem like we shouldn't need to ask this question. It's kind of obvious, isn't it? Perhaps it is obvious, but it's worth being clear. What Jesus means when he talks about believing here and what we need to think about is not just believing in the sense of giving assent to something in your mind, saying, yes, that's true. He's talking about something more than that. He means believing in the sense of being committed. His question is about where we put our trust, our confidence, It's not actually a question about whether you believe in supernatural things, for example. It's a question of where is your confidence as you go through life? It's a kind of believing that everyone does, actually, whether religious or atheist or whatever. We all put our faith, we put our confidence in something. How do we do that? How do we put our confidence in things? We do it in the choice we make underneath all our daily choices. Our daily choices about how to act, what to care about, what to think about and worry about. These are all shaped by commitments underneath them about what we have confidence in. Sometimes these commitments come to the surface like icebergs when we're faced with a demanding or difficult decision perhaps and we have to work out whose advice to listen to, where to find guidance, but our deep confidences are always already there underneath all our decisions, shaping them. What we choose to prioritise for our friends, or perhaps for our children if we have them. What we find ourselves worrying about for others, that will show you where your confidence lies. What we do with our money, that will show us too. Which people we care about and worry about? Which people's opinions matter most to you? That will show us something. What do we hope for from politics? That will tell us something. What, if we're really honest, do we think will give us a good and successful life? That's what we believe in. What are we going to put our confidence in? What are you going to put your confidence in? It seems like there are lots of good reasons to put your confidence in humanity. Just to, just to pick the one I think this passage really challenges us with tonight. Humans do many wonderful things, right? Kind things, gentle things, incredibly clever things, brave things. 
But Jesus is more worthy of our confidence. For humanity, for all its strengths and beauty, can also be ugly. There is a darkness in us and among us that is not just a minor difficulty, but a fatal compromising flaw. We are not reliable in the end. Ultimately, we can't say we are. We can't be the rock that we need. For we are the ones who betrayed Jesus. We are the ones who, when the light appeared, chose to love darkness. That doesn't mean we have to hate humanity, by the way. No way. How could it possibly mean that? For Jesus didn't hate humanity. He loved it. He became humanity so that he might save it. He gave himself in love for us. And so we too have to love humanity and devote ourselves to it. And we'll say more about this next week as we finish John 13. But what it does mean is that we must not believe in humanity. We must not. Humanity deserves our love, but not our confidence. No, there is only one who deserves our confidence. Believe that I am, says Jesus. He is the one who knew what was to come, who told us in advance, and who did not turn away from it, but face the darkness so that in the end the light would triumph and mean life for us. Praise him. Trust him. Amen. Let's pray. I think we're going to pray a prayer of confession, but you can lead that. I'll just pray first. Is that all right? Lord Jesus, it's pretty hard to imagine what it would have been like at this meal. We're a little bit frightened by what Judas did. We're a little bit frightened by the ways in which we are not completely unlike him. But we thank you so much that you faced all of that down. You stood in the face of the darkness and let it envelop you knowing that you would burst to life once more and bring us with you. We praise you and we thank you and we come to you not running away anymore, not wanting to scurry into hiding, but opening ourselves to you in hope, in hope of forgiveness and grace and your transforming power. We put our trust in you. We believe that you are the one and true rock on which we may stand. Amen.
for listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church Podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.